If you've not been with us the last several weeks, I, I don't have time to cover everything with you because I feel like what we're going to be talking about this morning is it, it was set up by the Lord. I did not plan to speak on this on this Sunday, but I feel as a church, as as God has led us through James, this is specifically for us at this specific time for this specific place um, we've been going through the book of James and trying to understand that we were naturally drawn to the book of James because of the do's and don'ts that we clearly can see and that we like lists. We're people who go, I can do that. I can do that. But see, here's the thing. The why we do that matters. And, uh, and so what we're seeing is James not saying, hey, you got to do these things to be saved. He's saying you do these things because you are saved. Works is not thrown out the window because of faith. Faith actually fuels our works. That's what James is pointing us to. And there's a couple of ways you can go about how you live this life. James is always pointing to the doubleness of this life. And we'll see that this morning. Uh, but, But there are a couple of things. And we talked about being marked by grace. The very first week we talked about trials. And that as Christ followers, those who have been marked by the grace of God, we endure trials. We don't jump ship when things get tough. In fact, we see how God uses trials and struggles and difficulties to shape us more into the image of his son, which is the point of this life. See, if you have another thought that the point of this life is that God is supposed to make your circumstances easy, that's not the point of life. The point of God's plan for us is to be shaped, conformed into the image of Jesus. And so we see that that happens through trials. We're people who who endure trials because of what grace has meant to us, has, has poured into us. Secondly, we're doers of the Word of God. We're not just podcast downloaders. We're not just blog readers. We are people who who prayerfully say, Jesus, look, I just read this text. I just read the Scripture. I'm not exactly sure how this is supposed to play out in my life. Would you please show me? Show me how I live out what I just read. We are not to be people who just read, think, walk away. We're to be people who read, chew on, think on, and put into practice. Thirdly, um, we're to control our tongues. We're not going to be perfect with our tongue because we know that it has the power of life and death. We're going to say wrong things. We're going to do wrong things with, with our mouths. We're going we're to speak words of death when we're supposed to speak words of life. It's not about the perfection of our words. It's about the power of our words. We understand that life and death can come from right here. We're people who control our tongue. The most mature believers I know, the thing that they all have in common is they are slow to speak. And I'm always wanting to hear what they have to say because of that. And this week, like I said, I do believe is perfectly timed. This is where we are in our nation. But in James, you and I will clearly see that those who are marked by grace love, love, Love the wisdom of God over the wisdom of the world. You and I, as those who claim to worship God, we have a love for the Word of God. We have a love for the wisdom of God. We have a love for His ways. And what's right there knocking on the door? Our ways. The world's ways. And we will see, according to James, that there are very real results because of which wisdom we choose to put in the driver's seat. Earthly wisdom has very real results. To say that I know best 
leads to jealousy, selfish ambition, chaos, and evil of every kind, according to James. Godly wisdom has very real results as well. To say that God knows best, humbly, to humble ourselves and say, God, I don't understand everything, but I trust that you are God and I am not, leads to very real results as well. And we'll see that peace and justice are very real results of humbling ourselves to the wisdom of God. Um, James chapter 3, starting in verse 13, says this, If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. Prove it. James is done with talking. There comes a point where words don't mean a thing. Lives speak louder. You can tell me you believe one thing, but all you have to do is look at somebody's life to know what they believe. This, this is true in every area of life. If I say that I love my family, but yet I do everything selfishly for me, it communicates something else. If I say I love money and I live my life sacrificing everything else for money, then it shows I love money. Every way of life operates on this. You speak something, but your life may show a different story. So the Christ follower is to say that if, if, if I say I have faith in God, then there are appropriate works that come because of believing the grace of God. But unfortunately, today, the church has fallen prey to worldly wisdom. Some of you may be thinking, wait, 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 no, 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 we haven't fallen prey to it because that sounds like a bad thing. It is a bad thing. The church has not been liberated because she's allowed worldly thinking into the church. The church has not been freed to anything because we have said, worldly wisdom, culture, tell us how we should live. We have fallen prey to, according to the scripture, worldly thinking. You and I, we say we believe God, but we live by our own wisdom. You say, we say we believe God, but we ignore his leading. We say we believe God, but we care little for his word. We say we believe God, but we look nothing like Jesus. We say we believe God, but envy, jealousy, and selfish ambition, they're all okay because it's drive. We say we believe God, but we tie ourselves to the world. James does not give us wiggle room. How are we to prove it? See, we're to prove it in a very different way from what the Pharisees may attempt to get us to do with this loud, boisterous, look what I am doing. And I said earlier, I have recognized that we are Facebook lions, but cowards in real life. We are boastful and arrogant on Facebook, but we are wimps in real life. The online world, the status update, the hashtag, the repost has allowed us this false sense of bravery. And I think it's giving us this, this air of superiority, of arrogance. And James says we prove it by our works marked by humility, which is so different than the works the Pharisees would demand from the people. James says it clearly, if. You are wise. So there's something we have to consider. If you're wise, if you are wise, and if you understand God's ways. 
This is something so great that Paul actually dedicates a portion of his prayer to the Colossian church like this. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Paul saying to the church, I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea and for many other believers who have never met me personally. I want them to be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. Hear this out right here. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, why would Paul tell this to the people? I am telling you this so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. Boy, have we been deceived by well-crafted arguments. There are well-crafted arguments everywhere. And it's when we refuse to understand God's ways that Christ is the plan. There is no other plan. There is no amount of work. There is no amount of things I can do to make me more a part of God's plan. God's plan is Jesus. Jesus is the plan. Jesus is the mystery plan revealed. God's way of rescue was not based on how strong we could be, but on how strong Jesus is. The simple way is we see what Jesus has done. We recognize our rejection of God's ways. We accept his life, death, and resurrection. And our life is simply saying, thank you for what you have done. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says it this way. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. That's me saying Jesus is the plan. He's done it. He's enough. Not my ways, not my thoughts, but I'm just sitting here going, Jesus, your freedom brought me freedom. Your life brought me life. Your death was actually the death I should have died. And your resurrection has purchased me new life. Thank you. What else is there to boast about? Why would we even put ourselves in the same light of worthy of boasting? My behavior is better than somebody else's. No. Jesus' death was death once and for all, the one who took away the sins of the world. That's why we boast. Jesus is the plan. And everything in the Old Testament and New Testament points right to that cross and to the resurrection of Jesus. The good works that you and I too are engaged in are a result of accepting this wisdom, Jesus, with humility. Such a different tone to how we live in life when it's accepting the wisdom that is Jesus with humility. Now, James gives us a very clear picture of what human wisdom looks like. Starting in verse 14 of James 3, he says this, But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. In the church, we have emphasized John 3.16, as we should. Many people have it memorized. May I encourage the church to memorize James 3.16 just as intensely. 
James 3.16 says that where wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. I don't think there could be a clearer difference between human wisdom and godly wisdom painted than in this picture right here. The very real results of human wisdom versus godly wisdom. James doesn't pull any punches. He says that human wisdom is, is, is unspiritual, is earthly and demonic. Now, what he means by earthly, meaning just that, thoughts centered on earth. Saying human wisdom thinks about the here and now, right now, me, what can I get? What can I have? I want it. I'm going to get it. And it's going to happen right now. That's how my earthly wisdom is based. That's what earthly wisdom looks like. It says, all I care about is the now. I do not care about eternity. I do not care about an eternal plan. I do not care about God's rescue. I do not care about the, you know, the, the, the supper at, in Revelation. I don't care about any of that stuff. What I want is right now, and that's how I'm going to live my life. He also says it's unspiritual, meaning it's the natural way of thinking. And that's not a good thing. <laughs> Sometimes we like to think that, well, it's the normal way of thinking. No, our normal way of thinking is bent towards selfishness. Our normal way of thinking, our natural way of thinking is bent towards us, towards me. I, me, want this thing now. That's what we're saying. That's what James is saying by saying it's unspiritual. And then he concludes with a very, very powerful picture that worldly wisdom is demonic. It doesn't give any wiggle room. Because even in non-religious circles, to say that earthly wisdom is demonic, people would go, well, that's the opposite of pure, good, and right. And it's true. Demonic wisdom is bent on destruction. That is what James is saying. He is not joking around. He is not saying that a hint of earthly human wisdom is a good thing. He's saying you have to be very careful. You have to be wise to God's ways to understand how destructive earthly wisdom, human wisdom, really is. James points to selfish ambition and jealousy because it was understood that from those, it was understood in ancient culture that jealousy and envy could lead to every kind of evil. Jealousy and envy could lead to murder, could lead to fights, oftentimes led to war. I was reading a little bit this week, just historically on different things, and um, some historians, Will and Ariel Durant, I don't know who they are, but they did this report, this historical overview. And they said that of man's reported 3,400 years plus of written history. So they say that as they've looked, there's right around 3,400 years worth of written history that they've been able to go through, look at, consider. And of those 3,400 plus years of written history, man has been at war all but 168 of those years. Reading a little bit further, they were talking about the armistice, the peace treaty that was signed between the Allied nations and Germany that brought the end to World War I in November 11th, 1918. And since then, for every year of war, there has been two minutes of peace. How is this possible if human beings are supposed to be so compassionate, so understanding, so intelligent, so smart, so able to do everything that we think we can do, and yet we've been at war for most of our lives? It's because human wisdom will not yield the results that we so hope for. 
worldly wisdom, human arrogance, and pride. As long as these things are depended upon, the result will be jealousy, envy, selfish ambition, along with every kind of evil. Now you see, if there is no God, then it makes perfect sense to live this way, does it not? If we are the highest plane, if we are the peak of existence, then it makes total sense to do everything out of selfishness, jealousy, and, uh, and chaos. Because it's, if it's true that we are it, and God is not existing, and he, he's, he's just not there, then it makes sense for us to live selfish lives and get ours now. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. It makes sense to live a selfish life if we are the highest plane. James touches on this a little bit further and starting in chapter 4, and we're going to jump and then go back because they're connected, I believe. James 4.1 says this, What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires that war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. Even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. See, this friendship word that he uses is not Facebook friendship. This word friendship, it was, it was, it was a fearful word. People were afraid of this word because it represented a close, tight intimacy unlike most of our friendships today via Facebook. James is talking about this intimacy that the church is supposed to have with the Lord, and she's running around with other lovers. This word adulterous, it is a shocking word. It's meant to break our hearts. It's meant to go, that's a terrible, terrible idea. When I was with, um, I don't just officiate weddings, but I also shoot weddings uh, video-wise, and um, that gives me a lot of behind-the-scenes looks into weddings and, and into the day of. And so I follow the bride, and typically I follow the bride from the moment she starts getting ready till the reception closes. What's amazing about these wedding, these wedding days is all that goes into it. And the, and the bride is so excited and she's talking about, you know, how they first met and how, you know, she's talking to her bridesmaids and her bridesmaids are like, I can't believe the day is here. You guys have been planning this. It's awesome. And we're so excited. And then I, then I spent, then I spent some time with the groom and I follow him around. Now this last wedding, one of these last weddings I shot, the groom was so nervous about reciting his, 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 uh, his vows, he recited them to every one of his groomsmen, one-on-one personal time. Then he recited them to his dad, and he recited them to the pastor who was doing it. He was so nervous about reciting his vows, and he was just like, I can't screw this up. This is such an amazing day. I don't want to look like a dummy in front of all these people. This day is about all that they say yes to each other. That's it. It's done. So to hear the word adultery in the mix of marriage, it's meant to shock. It's meant to go, Why? We said we did all this stuff to say yes, and now you're running around with other lovers. And this is the imagery that God gives in his relationship to his church. See, marriage is not something that humans came up with and God was like, huh, that's a good idea. I think I'm going to use that to describe something. God gave marriage not, and this is going to shock some of you, marriage is not first and foremost about my pleasure. Marriage is not first and foremost about my dreams coming true. My marriage is not about me finding Mr. Right, Mrs. Right. It's not about that. Marriage is about the covenant picture between a holy God and his people. 
And the relationship that it represents is close, it's intimate, it's personal, it's, it's something beyond what this world's wisdom would consider it. God says, look, Israel, and he says this in Jeremiah chapter 30, chapter 3, verse 2, verse 20, he says, you have been unfaithful to me. You people of Israel, you have been like a faithless wife who leaves her husband. I, the Lord, have spoken. In this relationship, you and I must understand God has not moved. We have. We are the adulterers. Each and every one of us. It is not meant to coddle us. It is not meant to make us feel good and wonderful. It's meant to break our hearts. That our rescuer, we have been running around with other lovers. This is the picture James is painting for the church, for us. It is not about, this relationship right here is not about those who are in the world, who have no faith in Christ, who are not a part of the church. This is about us. And how we have run around on God. James 4, 5 says this. He continues, Do you think the Scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the Spirit He has placed within us should be faithful to Him. God is described as a jealous God. His affections for us are a jealous affection. And I want to try and try and get rid of a thought that you're having in your brain. God's jealousy for us is not that catty, 16-year-old boyfriend jealousy. And what I'm talking about is I've been in student ministry for a long time, and I have seen ridiculous boyfriend material do things. I have seen 16-year-old boys keep their arms around their girlfriends really, really tight because they want everyone to know that this is their girlfriend. They put their arm around their girlfriend so tight when they're ordering food at McDonald's. They put their arm around their girlfriend when they're trying to play video games at Chuck E. Cheese. They put their arm around their girlfriend when they're worshiping. Because isn't that cute? No, it's ridiculous. God is not the jealous, catty, envy, weird, strange, obsessive 16-year-old boy who can't let his girlfriend do anything on her own. You see, the interesting part about God's jealousy for us, it's based on his understanding that we will not be complete, we will not be whole, we will not be satisfied unless we are with him because he alone satisfies See, if God was not God, God should point us to the thing that would satisfy most. But because God is God, he can point people to himself because he knows that in that we will be satisfied. God's affection for us and the fact that he is jealous for us is for our good. Everything good comes from being in that place of in that relationship. Everything good and perfect gifts, everything comes from the Father. That is where we are supposed to anchor. James is going after the heart drive that we all have in the pursuit of satisfaction or the sense of being complete. Anytime, anytime you and I go hard after something, it's because we feel like it will bring us satisfaction. 
If I go after the job, if I go after the money, if I go after the girl, if I go after the relationship, if I go after this, 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 any attempt that we go after something for, it is to add to this completion. We feel like I'll be satisfied, but I bet most of you, if you're honest, you can remember going hard after something and then being like, eh, I got it, but it, it really didn't do all that I hoped it would. And like I said, if there is no God, then it only makes sense that we go after what makes us happy because our happiness is at stake. We go after what we want most because our happiness is at stake. Earthly wisdom comes across this way. And I know it's going to sound very compassionate. It's going to sound very understanding. It's going to, it's going to sound very wise. One of the worst questions you can ask a sinful human heart is, what would make you most happy? And I know that's supposed to be the question, right? Here's the thing. I am a lot like my children. I really am. My children will go after about a billion things that they think will make them happy. My children would eat candy for days, not knowing the implications that would come from eating candy. My children, whenever they go, I don't feel good, I said, you want some candy? They're like, yep. My children would cross streets without looking all day long, man. I actually got, we were in a parking lot and I said, Kai, did you even look both ways? He ran back out into the middle of the parking lot street and looked both ways and was like, yep, and then ran back over here. I'm sitting there going, this is human wisdom. <laughs> this is my son being most happy at this moment and he's standing in the middle of the street. My children would hit each other all the time if given the option. That would make them most happy, not knowing the results of their deepest desires for happiness. Now, my kids, they're just like me. They lack wisdom. They lack perspective. They lack knowledge. They lack experience. This is our main problem with human wisdom, is we are lacking. We are not infinite in our knowledge. We are finite. We do have blinders. We can't see the end from the beginning. We don't know everything, and it's when we attempt to live as if we do, that's when we say, God, your wisdom, no thanks. I'll take my wisdom all day long. God's wisdom is what we are to hunt for, because he, unlike us, is not limited in any of those ways. And then James says that even when we do ask, we don't get what we want because our motives are wrong. The idol revealing that goes on right here is huge. We actually become people who want to use God to get what we want. James is revealing the sinful human heart here. Is God really what we want? There's a video I'm going to show you. We showed it a couple years back. Um, Elizabeth Elliot just, just passed, and she was an incredible storyteller, and she wrote a parable about Jesus and his disciples, and we made a little short video to it, and uh, I'm going to show it to you today. But the question, who are you carrying the stone for, when she asked that question in her book, it just was fascinating, because it revealed my heart, my wicked heart, in many ways. And so the book that this parable comes from is uh, These Strange Ashes, and, and it's a great, great read. Elizabeth Elliot was an incredible storyteller, so we tried to do justice to her story, uh, but this little short. When Jesus would go on walks with his disciples, he liked to teach them things. One time when they were walking, he stopped them in the middle of the road and said to them, 
I'd like you to carry a stone for me. The disciples stood there looking at each other with their confused faces. But because Jesus asked them to, they all started looking for a stone to pick up. Some of the disciples picked up heavy stones. Some of the disciples picked up medium stones. Peter, because he thought he was such a smarty pants, picked up a pebble and placed it nicely in his pocket. After all, Jesus didn't say how heavy the stone had to be. After all the disciples had picked up their stones to carry for Jesus, Jesus said, follow me. They followed Jesus over hills, through the woods, under branches, around puddles. They walked for a long time. At lunchtime, Jesus told them all to sit down. He waved his hands and all the stones they were carrying turned into bread. Now it's time for lunch, Jesus said. After walking all that way, the disciples were very hungry. Peter's lunch didn't last very long. After he finished his lunch, he just watched the others eat their really big loaves of bread. When lunchtime was done, Jesus made all the disciples stand up. Then he said to the disciples again, I'd like you to carry a stone for me. This time, Peter said to himself, Aha, now I get it. So Peter looked around and found the largest stone he could find. He threw it up on his shoulders. It was really heavy. He could barely walk with it. I cannot wait for dinner, Peter said. Jesus looked at his disciples and said, follow me. They followed Jesus over hills, through the woods, under branches, and around puddles. They walked for a long time. Peter could barely keep up, but he knew his plan was a really good idea. Around supper time, Jesus stopped them next to a river. Everyone, throw your stones into the water. They all did what Jesus said. Then Jesus said to them, follow me, and started walking again. The disciples were really confused and stood there scratching their heads and rubbing their beards. Peter was not happy. Jesus stopped walking, turned around, and saw them with their confused looks. He sighed. Jesus said to them, Don't you remember what I said? Who are you carrying the stone for? The question of who are we carrying the stone for is what James is getting at. You say you want all of these things, but you want just what will give you pleasure. And so what we'll even do in America is we will use God's name in some formulaic type of former fashion and we'll say, God, I've jumped through all these hoops. Now you're obligated to give me what I want. That thing that we want, we have just revealed as our idol. It's God's kindness that we actually reveal our own nasty hearts in our prayers. Is it that we want God to do something for us or give us something? Or the, the, the case for the Christ follower is we just want him. So when Jesus says, carry a stone for me, is, is your heart, well, I'll carry the stone if I'm getting bread out of it, Jesus. Or is it just enough that Jesus said, carry the stone? That's what she's getting at. And she's really revealing, Elizabeth Elliot really reveals the heart in this in this picture, because we can know, do we really want God or do we just want stuff from him? In the case of the Christ follower is we want him. God's fame, God's name, God's glory. And there's no formula for prayer that would 
God, if I do this, if I work hard enough, you're just going to give me what I want. God does not exist for my happiness. God does not firstly exist for me. I exist for him. Jesus said it this way in the Sermon on the Mount when it comes to prayer, and he gives us a clue. In Matthew chapter 6, he says, When you pray, don't babble on and on as people of other religions do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's glory, God's fame, God's name is firstly what we are most concerned about because we recognize that it is Him alone that satisfies, brings wholeness, brings completion, and ultimately has rescued us from our sin. James is pointing us to an understanding that the only way to see the total satisfaction, wholeness, salvation that we want is through God alone. Now, as the band comes and we close... I hope that you'll see that James is presenting the doubledness, the worldly wisdom, godly wisdom, friendship with the world, friendship with God, and they come with very real results. Verses 17 and 18 of James chapter 3 say this, But the wisdom from above is first of all pure, it is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. That word there could could be translated justice as well. Peace and justice. Two issues that are all over the front, line, front headlines right now. Here we can see the difference between worldly or human wisdom and God's wisdom. There are very different results. And what we're ultimately seeing is a picture of Jesus' life. We have experienced Jesus' peacemaking in our own lives. Jesus' gentleness shown towards us. Jesus did not show favoritism towards anyone. Jesus and His mercy. Jesus and His good works on the cross. And now you and I are called to reflect that life. Friends, real peace to the warring nation will not be found around the table of men discussing ideas but it will come from the heart of God. Real peace to the warring home. Yes, I understand reading books that will add to, but Dr. Phil and Oprah's words will not bring peace to a warring home. The heart of God brings peace to the warring home. The real healing to the hurt of racism in our nation will not be found in more left or right backing, speeches, table meetings, Although bringing light to these things is excellent to do. Bringing real relief and, 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 and reconciliation comes from the reconciling blood of the cross. Where the blood of Christ removed, according to scripture, the wall of hostility that we so naturally set up against each other. The blood of Christ. Racism is not just a social issue. It is a blood-bought purchased by God issue. That is what the wisdom of God invites us to consider. And in today's culture, we have flipped the results. We think that earthly wisdom will bring peace, justice, and is best. We think that godly wisdom is outdated, boorish, and deadly. 
That's how easily we twist the truth in our society. But what do we do if we put our anchor down in human wisdom? What do we do if we have found ourselves more influenced by the wisdom of the world than the wisdom of God? I believe James gives us a road home more clear than any picture that I've seen. Listen to these words, starting in verse 6 of James 4. And he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. See, I I do understand God loving everyone, but he does oppose people. I want you to understand that God opposes the proud. Those who say their wisdom or they know better than God, says God opposes. But who does he give grace to? Those that can say, I am not God. I am not infinite. I'm finite. You alone hold all wisdom. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. All these commands leading to a promise. And they are good commands leading to an even greater promise. Commands that come with a promise. Repent. Ask God to remove from you a desire to be wise according to the world. Proverbs 14.12 says this, There is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. But for the grace of God, you and I would be continuing on what seems right in our eyes. Guys, I hope you understand that our culture is happier with a perception of truth than the actual truth. I hope you understand that our culture is happier with what we think rather than the truth. Our culture is happier with what will make us happy rather than what is true. And so Proverbs says there is a way that seems right, but it's associated with death. In Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, we're very familiar with, we will read... But there's a 7 and 8 right after 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek His will in all you do, and He will show you which path to take. Don't be impressed with your own wisdom. Instead, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Then you will have healing for your body and strength for your bones. That fear of the Lord, yes, there is shock at how huge He is. That does cause us to cower. But there comes a time when we understand that if I go anywhere else outside of Him, I will find death and not life. When my son and I walk into a new place, typically he stays right on my leg. That is the fear of daddy. That is thinking that daddy is bigger, better, and stronger than anyone in the room. Typically I am. And when my son ventures out and things get a little shaky, he runs right back to, the, to, to daddy's leg. That is the fear of daddy. Understanding that daddy is bigger, greater, grander than anything this world has to offer and that I fear going anywhere else because I know the end result. You cannot be truly wise without Jesus. That's what the scripture says. There is no wisdom without him. So this morning, as we do every Sunday, I'd love to invite you. There will be some elders, some gel leaders praying over here. They'd love to pray for you. Encourage you. Maybe you need somebody to confess. I have allowed the culture and the wisdom of this world to influence how I think, live, breathe, move, and act. And I'm going to need some heart surgery. I'm going to need some brain surgery because I'm going to need the culture and the world's way of thinking removed so that God and His ways 
will cause me the life, peace, and justice that it says His Word brings. And if you've never considered Jesus, I'd love to pray with you. If you're kind of like, I have tons of questions about this person, Jesus. Why you guys talk about Him like you do? I'd just love to, to ask some questions. I'd love to pray for you. I'd love to encourage you. I'd love to schedule coffee, a meal. Friends, there is no wisdom without Jesus. In Him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I am telling you this so you will not be deceived by well-crafted arguments. Jesus, thank you for loving us, and I ask that in these moments you would hear us begging you for wisdom in a culture that just really boasts in itself. May we be a people that boast in the Lord. It's in your name we pray.